Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Kate and I are discussing a journal article titled Neurological Examination of Horses. It's by Dr. Caroline Hahn, and it was published in August 2022. So it's a very recent paper. The neurologic examination in horses is a somewhat modified version of the examination they do in small animals. However, spinal reflexes and postural reactions are difficult to assess in most animals. Methodical examination of the head, neck, and trunk, perineum, and gait and posture allows for an effective assessment of the nervous system. Tight circling of ataxic patients is useful to disclose ataxia and paresis of limbs, and pulling on the tail while the horse is moving is the most useful test for upper motor neuron paresis. The severity of ataxia and paresis should be evaluated. It could be paresis can be graded mild, moderate, or severe, and then ataxia has a five, um, I guess you number them on a scale of zero to five, with zero being normal, one would be um, inconsistent uh, walking and mild um, ataxia that only really an expert eye can pick it up. And then grade two would be subtle, but consistently abnormal. Three would be on a straight line, completely obvious, even to the non-horse person. And then four would be if the horse has to lean against a wall to keep from falling. Sometimes I'll sit on a feed tub that's hanging from the wall. Um, They are at a very high risk for falling. And uh, five is recumbency. They can't get up. So there's your five stages of ataxia. And um, I really like this paper, Kate, because I think how often owners may call a vet for a neurological exam and then the vet gets there and it's nothing dealing with a neurological disease. So it's important for, I think, a horse owner or a horse professional to kind of be able to assess and relay that information to your vet before they come out. Because as we can see in this article, there's a lot of different ways um, they can assess a neurological event. I think um, that's a great point, Nancy, because they do point out in the article as well that you don't need a detailed knowledge of the neuroanatomy as long as you note every deficit when you're doing this exam. So it's absolutely something owners can um, 
somewhat assess anyway and then contact their vet and be able to give them this information um i think though there are nuances to it as we go through it and there's definitely like doing a neurological exam the whole purpose is to determine is there a deficit or is there a lesion in some nervous system that's basically causing the animal to not be able to move properly or to have um, a paralysis in a certain area. I think where the nuances come in with what owners can and can't do is due to the fact that like horses are difficult to do these examinations in sometimes. And definitely there's more challenges around doing neurological examinations in horses than there would be you know, in dogs or cats or even people. And one of the big ones that always stands out to me is just the risk, especially when you were talking through and um, the different stages for ataxia. And we'll cover that when we look at um that scale. But the risk of the horse falling over, at that point, you know, if your horse is pressing against the stable wall or is really unstable on their feet, just the most important thing is you don't try and carry out a neurological exam because you are at a very high risk of getting injured. So getting the vet in at that point is really important. But I also think at that point, it's quite obvious um, that it is a neurological issue. You know, you're not out of your depth in calling the vet and you're not calling them for no reason. And so where I think this would be super useful to owners is in the early stages and picking up those subtle signs yeah, And that's exactly why we always say you have to become aware of what's normal and, and mm-hmm. isn't because, you know, you're always kind of as an owner, you could second guess or just kind of um, not ignore, but kind of think a certain sign is not important to relay. And a lot of these neurological diseases are progressive. So you've got to get them early, especially ones that are like botulism, where um, it can progress very rapidly. Also, there's been some neurologic signs in horses that have gotten rabies and Mm -hmm. You know, they mistake it for maybe EPM and they're looking for what it could be. Is it equine herpes virus, the neurologic form, or what is it? There's certain signals that will lead a vet to test. And and in this particular case that I'm talking about, they took cerebral uh, spinal fluid and uh, found that the horse did in fact have rabies. They were actually looking for... Um, the EPM parasite in the spinal fluid, and it ended up being a, a totally different, um, you know, it was rabies, not EPM. So um, the good thing I thought was that it, this encompasses very little equipment. You need a, a flashlight or a pen light or your cell phone light. And in this paper, they did use a, um, oh, a, a forcep, but you could just use a ballpoint pen and use that to um, look at the nerve sensations that you're getting a response to. And then also a video camera really could help out uh, if you record um, so you can play back. And then also that will kind of help you to assess progression 
of the disease over time or if you're making headway. I think that's a great point, Nancy, like being able to actually track it. Mm -hmm. And we talk about using video so much throughout all these podcasts because it's so useful. It's such a great visual aid to look back. And that just goes back again to your point of what is normal. You know, what does the horse normally do? And if you actually have videos even of your riding lessons with the horse or any training or them out of pasture, you're capturing like little snippets of their behavior as well. And some of the questions they were saying, because history is really important in this too, is, you know, finding out from the owner, is it normally a quiet horse or, you know, do they have a depressed mentation at the moment? Um, Is the problem episodic? So, you know, if they're head shaking, has this been developing over a period of time or is it just seasonal? Is it seasonal allergies that's causing it? Um, And then what's really important is if it was sudden or if it's been progressive over time. And one um, disease that they mention is cervical vertebral malformation. So that's the vertebrae or the bones in the cervical spine, which is the neck of the horse. Um, And this disease, this cervical vertebral malformation, it can present at really acute, severe signs, despite the fact it's developed over time. So we see this sometimes in young horses that are growing really quickly. I think um, young males are more predisposed to it because they grow a little bit quicker than our female horses. Um, and we see it in older horses that get like um, chronic changes to the vertebrae from arthritis. So they can all of a sudden start displaying neurological symptoms because the malformation in that bone, either from quick growth at a young age or from um, bony changes due to arthritis starts pressing on the spinal cord. So there's a number of things like Nancy mentioned, botulism and equine herpes virus, the neurological form. Um, There's loads of different things that can cause neurological symptoms, but it's important that we're systemic every time in how we tackle it. So it can be really easy to see a horse that's doing neurological signs and they just start immediately in your head taking note like, oh, they're doing this with their leg. They're doing this with their tail. They're moving their head like this. But we're going to miss an area if we're sporadic, I suppose, about our examination. So they list the steps that the very first step is we examine the head, then the neck and trunk, then the perineum, then the gait and posture then they have steps to carry out in recumbent animals and step six is to look at the autonomous zones. So we were just going to kind of run through it from the beginning um, and talk through all the different aspects of the neurological exam. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to mention about the history that is so important is vaccination history. Because Mm -hmm. so many of our encephalitis type diseases can be prevented. West Nile virus, Eastern Western encephalitis. So many of our vaccination protocols, the veterinarian, if he's not the one giving those vaccines, he needs to know what vaccines that horse has been given and and rabies is included in that. So an overall history can be what does the owner see what do they see different? 
And then what farm, what horse show, what event has that horse traveled to? Maybe there was an equine herpes outbreak, maybe other horses that were at that show are exhibiting the same um, symptoms. So the history involves everything that horse has been exposed to in the past 30 days. And um, I think that's giving the vet an overall picture so they can begin to make the, that differential diagnosis on what may be going on here. Yeah. And vaccination is such an important one. I think if you are in a position where you don't know the vaccination history of a horse um, for whatever reason, or do you know, like it's easier said than done as well to let it lapse um, and to think, no, no, they were definitely not due until, you know, summer. And then you go and you check the passports and you've somehow missed that it was actually, you know, October or something that they were due in your way out now. So have a reminder in your phone, use your calendars, input when vaccines are due. A lot of vets actually send out vaccination reminders, which are great, um, but some don't. So just another thing to remember to stay on top of, because as Nancy said, like for them to get something that was preventable by a vaccine, it's absolutely devastating. Especially like tetanus too. We had that episode on tetanus. It, mm-hmm. It's a affordable vaccination and sometimes you don't see puncture wounds that your horse gets in a mm-hmm. feed or during riding you sometimes they heal on the outside before you see them and and you know it might result in an abscess but you'll have that tetanus vaccination in your horse before that uh, bacteria can begin to take effect yeah um, so then starting, I suppose, with the head first, um, they have some, they have it laid out quite nicely in this article, actually, of how they go about the evaluation. So you want to look at behavior. It's always anytime we're working with horses, you know, we need to assess them before we ever put hands on them. So just look and see how they're acting, how they're behaving. If you can do this without disturbing them, that's great, whether they're in a field or whether they're in a stable. You know, just have a look in before you start calling out to them or before you make too much noise. Um, So it's ideal as well not, you know, to be having loads of conversation right outside the door. You know, you want to assess them natural, just relaxed in the stall if possible. We want to look at their mentation, that head posture and any head movement. Um, and then assess the cranial nerves. So these are the nerves that are in the face. So when we're looking at the horse and the cranial nerves, what I always think is really interesting is if they get paralysis of a facial nerve, they you'll start to see a couple of signs on their face. And the words that you need to remember is symmetry. So symmetry is where you look at the horse dead on and the left side should match the right and where they may have like a right-sided facial nerve damage their ear on the right would droop a little their eye um, might not be able to blink they then actually have their nose like their lip will hang lower on the right and their nose will be slightly off to the left 
because the muscle on the left side of the nostril is working properly to pull that up and down with each breath. So it's almost like pulling the nose over to the side where the muscles are working. And there's some great pictures online if you have a Google of this, um, which I think is really useful too, is to look up videos and pictures of horses that do have this. But why the facial nerve one always stands out to me is this can happen um, in a number of different ways. And one really simple way that it can happen is from a head collar. So if a head collar is too tight or ill-fitted and is putting significant pressure on that nerve, it can cause partial paralysis. And we see this sometimes as well where we have to do surgery on horses and the head collar is not removed for the surgery. So the horse is lying on its face and pressing down on that head collar or in recumbent foals that might have a head collar on. So, you know, they're down anyway due to something else, some other illness. And then this pressure on the head collar ends up causing this partial paralysis to the face. Yeah, that's a, that's some good points there, Kate. And also um, the differences between the pupil dilation in each eye can be a little clue as to what may be going on, especially in that trigeminal nerve. So um, this paper has a great assessment of all the cranial nerves and you can look them up and it will tell you like, cranial nerve five is the trigeminal nerve and what it affects. And I also think you can watch a horse eat and tell so much about, is it chewing correctly or the lips, you know, do, is there symmetry in the way they're chewing or are they slightly off? And, um, you know, it's once again, just noticing those little things that uh, sometimes we take for granted that the horse can do. Can it drink water? And uh, is it interested in food? Things like that. And we've mentioned before how um, perceptive they are with their lips, that they're able to, you know, pick out medication in a whole bucket of feed and avoid it. So, even doing something like the author suggests offering a polament and seeing if the patient can pick it up and swallow it. And um, if they are, are having any difficulties with chewing or swallowing, then um, don't offer a uh, hard fees, you know, wait until you get a vet out there, limit what you're actually giving them because you want to be very careful to avoid a choke in those situations. Yeah, I really um, could relate to the cranial nerve 12. Um, that's the strength of the tongue. And in racing, mm -hmm. we grab that tongue and we put a tongue tie on them. And you'd be surprised how strong and how slippery that can be. And some horses are really good at evading that tongue tie. And, and it says in this uh, article that cases of botulism the tongue just does not have any tone to it so that would be a real warning sign to me if I grabbed a horse's tongue and there was no resistance there that mm -hmm. would um, and that would be the cranial nerve involvement that moves that tongue or lets them manipulate that such an important 
piece of the anatomy for them to be able to eat and to swallow food and, and drink water. Yeah. And that I think they mentioned as well with botulism um, that that is one of the one important sign in it is that poor tongue tone. Yeah. And, and also it's the eye. If when you go to open a horse's eye and make the you know, lift the eyelid, a lot of times you'll get resistance to do mm -hmm. that. And in botulism, it, it, there'll be no resistance. So it's just so cool the way the horse's body is a roadmap to the different nerves. And talking about the eye, the examination for vision and the author mentions is quite crude in horses. So it's generally limited to appraising the responses to um, stimulus, basically moving your hands towards the eye quite quickly. They call it a threatening gesture in the paper. Um, but I don't want that to be confused with someone thinking that you're actually like raising your hands as if you're slapping them. You know, you're just moving it quite quickly towards the eye and they should blink in response um, and close their eye. And then we also have the papebral reflex where you're very lightly tapping with your finger the inner corner of their eye. So at the very front of their eye where it meets in that corner, you're tapping lightly and they should blink when you tap there. That That's a good point, Kate, because there's so much um, you could do even just while you're grooming your horse to learn what is normal for that horse and watch those responses. Cause you know, when it's a, a illness comes up, you'll notice the change. You'll notice what's not quite right. And that could lead to a very quick diagnosis other than a long, um, you know, time frame of trying to figure everything out. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, we should, when we're grooming, run our hands over the whole horse constantly and just getting so used to what is normal. And I think that's something that we're going to come back to a lot as we go out throughout the paper, you know, what is normal in your horse. But these little tests, like with the eye, that's going to happen, you know, every time unless your horse has an abnormal eye response so every horse should blink when you tap that inner corner and every horse should blink when you're moving your hands you know quickly towards their eye as well yeah I, I thought it was interesting too about the uh, sweating that takes place when there's lesions and um, now they're creating problems and like sweating of the face and the neck and um, they list the uh, cervical vertebrae that that involves. And then, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you may think that it, the horse just may be, you know, you may take a temperature thinking there's an elevated temp, but actually it's the, the involvement of these nerves. And I was really surprised how something happening along the trunk can actually be making the face sweat and behind the ears and, and things like that. So some really neat puzzles that um, our veterinarians have to have the knowledge to piece together. 
Um, and all of these, I suppose that's a great way to kind of look at it now and say all of these little puzzle pieces mm. have to be taken together. So, you know, one individual sign is very difficult to create a diagnosis from. Um, and that's why it's important that we're doing this so thoroughly and so systemically. So we're picking up on each symptom as we move. And um, so once we've done that facial test, we're going to move down to the neck and trunk. Had you anything else for the head you wanted to add, Nancy? No, um, I just wanted also to maybe say about head tilt. So not, oh, yes. not only a good symmetry between left and right and uh, up and down, but also if there's a slight head tilt. And I always remember the young horse that reared up and, and hit the door frame and always had a head tilt after that. Well, it's apparent he probably did some damage to a, a cervical vertebrae and then mm -hmm. he had to deal with that in, in his training but a, a head tilt will tell you so much as well about where damage or an injury could have occurred yeah and he did he still trained fine with that he did. We had to go slow and uh, we had to really rehab him slowly because he actually, um, you know, he wasn't quite right right after that. And then with time, those nerves came back and he never did get rid of the head tilt, though. But he ran. I mean, he ran really good. But all his videos, there's that head tilt. And I'm certain. Yeah was because of of an injury that we just couldn't fix the bones in his in his neck you know and I kind of lost track of him with time but I wonder as he aged if that arthritis in his neck presented other problems okay yeah, yeah probably I always think about my horses that I had on the track that I galloped or groomed far or trained. And I wonder if um, how they fared in old age and, and what cropped up and all that. And a vet once told me that your three main diseases neurologically are going to be um, neck arthritis, EPM, and then spinal um, deficits that occur like with an injury like kissing spines or um, mm -hmm. you know um, rear end pelvic injuries or arthritis things like that and she said um, the it's uh, EPM neck arthritis and rabies were the three diseases that she sees the most that exhibit um, neurological symptoms Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So an EPM, they can take a spinal tap or spinal fluid or even blood work. First off, they're going to do blood work and there's going to be titers to the SARC. Um, I think it's uh, the parasite that usually comes from possums, skunks, animals like that. And um, that's going to be present in like 90 something percent of horses because they're all exposed to that, especially in the Midwest and the East Coast. So then their next step is to be completely positive is to take a spinal tap. 
And then um, in that one case, that's where they found out about the rabies. So there's a certain progression of testing and diagnostics they can do. And that's the equine um, protozoal myeloencephalitis? Yep. yep. Yeah, that's it. And it can cause testing my brain there to get that out. Um, It is a parasite that comes from the possum. I don't know how um, prevalent that is here because I haven't heard of it much um, in a long time, actually. Yeah, they don't. They have it more so East Coast, Midwest, less so in the Western states. But it's, you know, I mean, in farmland and especially where we live, it's, you know, possums are around and now they think skunks carry it and raccoons, animals like that. And then if they get in your pasture and urinate or um, defecate in your pasture or on hay, the horse consumes that. And then that's how that protozoan or that parasite gets into their uh, bloodstream. Now, some horses, it just stays in the bloodstream, but other horses, it actually takes up residence in the spinal cord. And then that's when you you see problems. Interesting. I must actually look up if that's something that occurs in Ireland. Yeah, I don't. Um, I, I know there. it's so weird how between Uh, Europe and um, Ireland, the UK and the United States, there's different diseases that take prominence in horses. Yeah, because we are rabies free here. We don't have any cases of rabies in the country. And that's why like vaccination protocol is so important with any imports into the country. Yeah. And that's why when a vet comes on a farm and there's um, you know, neurological type behavior that he needs to see if is that horse vaccinated against rabies. Now it's rare, but it's happening more and more in this country where, um, you know, if a horse will, will come up with rabies. It, back 20 years ago, you didn't think you really needed to vaccinate a horse for rabies. You did it out of precaution but it wasn't something we did regularly, especially on the racetrack, because they're not mm-hmm. exposed to animals. But um, now, I mean, it's a regular part of our vaccination program. Interesting. Yep, yep. But you guys also have grass sickness that we don't have. Yes. And so that would be a good episode if we could compare certain um, diseases and the differences between continents, you know, that that's kind of interesting. And I always thought grass sickness may be an old world type illness from a uh, soil that has been mm-hmm. a longer time because we're a relatively new company or company country. <laughs> no company. <laughs> when you compare to Ireland and the UK and, you know, you guys have buildings that are older than what our country is. Yeah. Some, some um, have been around a long, long time. (laughs) Um, But that's a great point. It it very well could be because a lot of these diseases are um, in the environment or they're um, in the soil. So, Definitely, definitely an episode we should do in the future. I'm not sure if it's one we'll find 
a lot of comparative literature on, but we can do a little bit of a literature search ourselves and do that comparison. Yeah, kind of the history and, and all that. Because, um, you know, I remember Bryony uh, from Ed. Yes. She had her research was in grass sickness. Yes, I always think of her when I think of grass sickness. Me too. And she was our our lead supervisor for the program at that time. Now she runs the whole program. But um, uh, when it comes to the trunk of the horse to get back to this, I thought one of the neatest things is you can do a simple test with just a hemostat uh, you know, over the croup, along the sides of the trunk, you're just looking for a response, a nerve mm -hmm. response. And, um, you you know, I tend to use a big pen because it's... I was just going to say a pen with the laser is fab. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of movement that can tell you if things are normal or not. And it tells your vet so much before they even arrive on the farm, um, what they may be dealing with and, and what they're looking for. And when you think of a horse fly or a mosquito landing on your horse, think about how they can twitch violently in that one area. You know, the minute the horse fly is starting to bite, they're really twitching the skin in that area, really moving it. That's what we're assessing when we're doing this um, pen or hemostat tip um, sensation. I have another word for it, but I can't think of it just now. But I guess you call it a sensation test. So you're taking, say, the pen with the lid on it and starting just behind the top of the ear and gently dragging that down along the skin. Now, not enough pressure to kind of cause a mark but you want to be making good contacts with the skin the whole way down. And you want to watch the skin twitch as you're moving along with the pen. And it should be twitching where you're touching. Yeah. And the kind of like a reflex action or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, such an easy thing to do. And um, it gives you a lot of information. And then also, the movement of the trunk. Now we're going to get into gait assessment next week on this and posture and things like that. But even, uh, you know, as you're walking the horse, um, I remember I had a horse in a barn that I boarded at that had EPM. It wasn't my horse. It, it was a friend of mine. And when they did that horse's exam, they the horse came out with a lowered head. It was moderately ataxic. But when they raised that head up and took away the visual of the horizon, that horse it even got kind of, um, oh, it got so serpentine in its trunk. It could not maintain the front, couldn't, the back could not follow the front whatsoever. And it kind of all fell apart in the trunk area. And it's because it lost that, that um, horizon vision to help it with mm -hmm. um, vestibular system and I'll never forget that so you can one thing we didn't say about the head area is you can assess that too when you're walking the horse by raising 
or lowering and having the head in different positions, but you have to be experienced as a handler because you don't want that horse to fall on you. Yeah, the raising the head is a great one because you're changing their vision. Yeah. Um, and it's looking at their gait as you do that too is absolutely like a great tell yeah. um, in the neurological exam. But yeah, I mean, next week we're definitely going to end up touching on this more, but the risk of them falling over doing some of these exams is really quite high when we get into the gait exams. So I, I end up reiterating, reiterating this so much to my students, but your safety first and foremost, you know, if they are quite ataxic, if they're really wobbly, like I always think of it like they're doing a bit of a drunk walk, you know, they can't seem to follow a pattern and they can't go in a straight line. Don't start asking them to do additional things like lifting their heads at this point. Yep. And not circling in five meter circles. Oh my gosh. They're going to go over. If you, if you have a horse that's like really wobbly on its feet and you ask it to do a tight circle, um, I don't understand that anyway, because I think if you've got a horse that's really wobbly, you don't need to do that tight circle to determine their level of ataxia. You can clearly see their ataxic when they're trying to walk on the straight. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I agree. So should we end here, Kate, and we'll pick it up next week? Um, yeah, I think that's a great part to end on. There's so much. I love these kinds of papers, you know, where they talk about practical exams that you can carry out, but there's so much in it. So um, I think the gait and the posture is a really interesting section that we're going to have next week. That sounds great. And we'll cover the, um, you know, different number of the cervical vertebrae. And then also um, you've got the um, thoracic, that's it. And then also then uh, you've got the L ones too behind that. Lumber, yeah. And then um, I think the sacrum too. So yes. we'll, we'll shout out some numbers and uh, have a Google of the spinal uh, vertebrae of a horse. It's absolutely fascinating and how certain vertebrae then connect to nerves that connect the different areas so we're going to try and make a roadmap for you so you kind of get a picture of what the puzzle is supposed to look like it's a beautiful structure yeah. I mean it's just fascinating and um, the actual locomotion of the horse and how that skeleton allows them to move the way they move and at the speeds they move I mean it's it's really um and they have such a long back I mean, yeah, the, the, some even more than others. <laughs> I know, yeah. So anyway, I'm looking forward to this. This is a really interesting topic. And I think it's one we've never covered before. So this is all new and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Any questions, send them to Kate or I and we'll be happy to look into it or research you want done. And, um, you know, we can see everybody next week. Lovely. We'll see you then. Thanks, Nancy. Take care. You too, Kate. Thank you. Bye-bye.